Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca. Hey, it's Erica, and welcome back to another episode of In Doubt. Based on the title of this episode, I'm sure you've guessed what we're going to be talking about today. Sex. And I should clarify, the biblical understanding of sex. Here with us is our host Isaac and pastor and author Paul Carter. Paul has dedicated much of his time to understanding sex with a biblical perspective, and we're so grateful he's here to help us understand a little bit better what sex means within the context of marriage and what the Bible has to say about it. We're so glad you're here and hope you enjoy part one of our conversation with Paul Carter. Hey, welcome to In Doubt. My name is Isaac, one of the hosts of In Doubt, as well as the pastor at North Valley Baptist Church in Mission, British Columbia. It's a privilege to have with me on the show today, Paul Carter. Paul is the pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia, Ontario. He is on the board of the Gospel Coalition Canada, and he's also a podcaster himself. So he's used to this, right? So yeah, he teaches the Bible on his Into the Word podcast. So it's great to have you with us today, Paul. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Before we go any further, I would love just for you to share with us a little bit about who you are, and maybe particularly, you can you can think of it as, how did you come to know Christ? You can share that. And then, what does your life look like right now? Well, interestingly, I came to Christ in ways, in a couple ways that, that might be considered uh, old-fashioned or traditional uh, in today's church. My parents actually came to Christ late in life. Um, through a, an, an evangelist, uh, the Satira twins. I don't know if, you, if you've ever heard of the, the Canadian revival in the, in the 70s. Uh, and my parents uh, were out west for work. And uh, my mom went to a revival meeting and uh, came to Christ. And then she came home and told my dad that he needed to go hear this evangelist. And uh, my dad went. My dad is a little more uh, deliberate, I, I suppose, than my mom. And so he went many times and had several follow-up meetings uh, before he gave his life to Christ. But then as a result of my parents coming to Christ, I was raised uh, in the church, in, in the Christian context. And so I actually went to backyard Bible study. There's another one of those weird things uh, from the past. But nice. I, I went to backyard Bible study in 1980 uh, and uh, heard about Jesus and, and learned about the gospel. And I remember uh, praying to receive Christ as my Lord and Savior with Mrs. West in the back steps of her house at backyard Bible study. And and I was raised in a good Bible-believing church. And, uh, you know, in terms of who, where I am now, or I, I, I think there's never been a time in my life when I haven't loved Jesus. Uh, certainly in my adolescent years, there was lots of battles with, with sin and, and with lordship and authority and all that kind of stuff, like it's fairly common for young people. But there's never been a time uh, since I was six years old that I didn't love Jesus, didn't trust Jesus, didn't want to follow him with my life. And um, anyway, uh, the Lord has led me into ministry. I'm, I'm the pastor now, as you say, of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia. I've been here for 14 years. I like to write. And uh, the podcast has been an interesting journey. We started the po- podcast. It was weird. We started the podcast basically to help our commuters. Um, I could tell by the way you needed some help there with how to say Aurelia. It's, just, it's not a, a really well-known town. It's actually a, it's the northernmost sort of bedroom community associated with the city of Toronto. Okay. And okay. Uh, so we have... Yeah. So basically uh, you can't work in Toronto and live anywhere further North than us. So there's there's kind of a a Northern limit, an Eastern limit and a a Western limit. We're the Northern one. 
And uh, so we had a number of, of folks who were driving a long way for work and were having a hard time keeping up with their Bible reading. So I just thought, well, gee, you know, I could probably do this. I could, I could probably read the Bible to you. You're, we use the RMM plan here and I could, you know, provide a few pastor level comments. And yeah. I imagine there might be a hundred people using that from our church and it's just kind of exploded. And now we have more listeners in South Carolina most weeks than we do <laughs> here in Aurelia, but it's just been funny how, uh, how God has used it. Yeah, that's great. And um, I, I saw quickly on your bio, just so people might be interested. So you, you are married and you have some children. So yeah. maybe share a little bit about that. Yeah, my wife and I have been married uh, for 23 years, uh, 24 years, actually. Yeah, it's important to remember that. Uh, coming up on 24. But uh, we have uh, five kids. And uh, we uh, one of our children is, is adopted. My wife and I did uh, have fostering for, for years and years and years and years. And so that's always been a passion of ours. And we had the great joy and, and delight of uh, adopting one of our foster children as well. So that's, that's just been a really cool experience. Uh, it's, a, it's a gospel metaphor that we've been privileged to live from the inside. So yeah, I've been really excited about that. That's been a, a joy and a blessing. And, uh, and we have a dog. I yeah. suppose that's the other thing <laughs> you need to know. That's good. I didn't read that on the bio, so that's important, right? That's good. Um, yeah. And I'm wearing my, I'm wearing my Toronto Blue Jays uh, there you go. golf shirt right now. So yeah. that's important for people to know <laughs> as well. I'm a big baseball fan. Okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. Well, we won't talk about baseball and all that stuff right now. That's okay. <laughs> it's a bit of a sore spot. Yeah. It is a little bit of a sore spot. Yeah, I got that. Um, all right. Well, Paul, let's just jump in here. A couple years ago, you did write this article for the Gospel Coalition Canada. And the title of it is Five Surprising Things That the Bible Says About Sex. And if someone's listening right now and you didn't know what this conversation was going to be on, that's it. Um, obviously, more than that, and obviously we're looking at it with gospel, godly, biblical lens. But firstly, maybe the, a good question would be, why do you think it has been so popular? This, this question. Maybe that's kind of an easy question because sex, I mean, we live in a very sexualized culture. So anything with sex, people kind of are interested. But yeah, w w how have you kind of thought about this fact that your this article has just kind of always been there? Well, and it's, it, it's a funny question, to be honest with you. I, I was joking around with a, a couple guys on the Gospel Coalition, one of the other writers and uh, the editor. And it is weird that this article uh, has been, it's, it, it's been our most read article for the last two years consistently almost every week it's it's the most read article and which is weird because the gospel coalition we kind of self-identify as this sort of you know egghead club like on the continuum of christianity you, you, we're not the ones you might have expected to to you know be waving the flag on on this issue it's it, we write a lot of articles on deep theological truths and and so for this article to be the one that most people come and find us for has been odd uh, now, in truth, it was not a complete accident. It was a bit of an experiment. One of the things uh, that we learned through our, our American friends, uh, the Gospel Coalition in the States has been just tremendous with us in terms of helping us understand uh, web ministry. One of the things they made us aware of is that there is a huge surge in Google searches on Christian topics. It's, it's something that we haven't entirely wrapped our heads around. Like, I think most of us sort of imagined that if, if, if our unsaved neighbor had a question about faith, he would call up a, a Christian friend or she would call up a Christian friend. The reality is now that they're Googling those questions. And so we were kind of challenged by our American friends at the Gospel Coalition to, to produce some articles that were really less for the you know, the standard gospel coalition reader who, you know, who's either a pastor or a lay person involved in leadership and interested in thinking, thinking more deeply about the faith and more for that seeker on the internet. Um, and, and so we wrote a bunch of articles that, 
that were basically engineered for Google searches. Um, and uh, we had a list of very common Google searches. So the fact is people have questions out there about sex. Um, and, and I don't just mean that in a kind of an adolescent way, uh, like a, a curiosity. There is confusion out there. We're in the midst of a massive sexual revolution, the likes of which we've never seen before. Everything is up in the air. All the old assumptions have been thrown out the window. And interestingly, people want to know, what does the Bible say? And so that's, that's how we styled the title. You know, what does the Bible say about sex? But five surprising things uh, that the Bible says about sex. Uh, because I think people have preconceptions. They've been told, right? One of the other factors, I think, driving traffic on this article has been the amount of disinformation out there in the media about what the Bible teaches about sex. A ton of you know, media folks who loosely identify as Christians, whether they're you know, on, on CNN or, or, or Glee, you know, characters in Glee, there have been a number of these incidents where people have sort of said, hey, listen, I am a Christian of sorts, and here's what the Bible says about sex. And that's it sounds wrong to people. That's not what they remember hearing the Bible says about sex. So there's this curiosity. What does the Bible actually say about sex? And so anyway, it's uh, it's certainly struck a chord. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it, it's awesome. And I, just for listeners' sake, I'd encourage you to read it. I read it uh, with my wife and it was great. We, we were learning a lot. And just to kind of, to, to kind of cause you not to be in fear, it's not written for uh, a scholar. You've purposely wrote it, no. I'm sure. Very, very yeah, simply. Yeah, very much so. And uh, so it's very digestible and uh, it's great. We actually really enjoyed it. It was really helpful. Um, and yeah, just to, just to validate your point too, there are lots of Christians, especially Christian young people, that are interested in matters of biblical se sexuality and biblical sex, not in any sort of intentionally lustful way, but in serious ways that they actually really want to know what is permissible, what's not, what's the point, all these various things. So I really appreciate that. So yeah, let's dive into this. So um, maybe a way we could start off, obviously people can go read it, but also could you just share with us what these five things are? Just briefly, just kind of share with us, go through them. I think it'll pique people's interests. And then maybe after you could say, you know, which one is the one that you would think is most surprising and then listeners can, can judge that. <laughs> Sure. Well, so as the title indicates, it, it wasn't an, an attempt to provide like an exhaustive theology of sex or everything the Bible says about sex. It was more, uh, let's, let's address some of either the disinformation or the counterintuitive uh, things that the Bible says about sex. So, um, you know, there's things like I could have said that I think probably most people would know, like sex should happen within marriage, for example. We make that point along the way, but we wanted to address again, some of these misunderstandings and maybe some of the, the counterintuitive, the stuff that you'd be surprised to discover. So first thing we said is that it is good. Uh, I, I think there is a notion out there that, that Christians are the no people or they're the sexual downers, the, you know, don't have fun, uh, lie back and think of the empire, right? Like it's, it's, and so we wanted to counteract that. And, and so we, we go to the scriptures where it talks about how the husband and wife were both naked and not ashamed, Genesis 2.25. And how it's part of the created order, that it has nothing to do with the fall, that sex wasn't original sin. There's, there's lots of sort of urban legends uh, about what Christianity believes about, about sex. You know, maybe people have heard a parody of Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter, and, uh, as opposed to actually reading it. And, and so there's all these kinds of misconceptions out there that, that Christians are opposed to sex. So we want to start there. It's, it's good. And, uh, and then the second thing uh, that we say is that husbands owe it to wives, meaning it's reciprocal. 
in, in fact, many historians who don't love Jesus, meaning that they're, they're not Christian historians, they're just historians, consider what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7 to be the most radical statement in the ancient world on human sexuality. So 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 4, Paul says, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, her sexual rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Now, that clause in, in the verse wouldn't have been a, a shock to anybody in the ancient world. Everybody understood that the husband had, had rights over his wife's body. But this next statement was radical. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. This is the first time in the ancient world that there is a statement about the reciprocal nature of sex. This is also the first time where women are uh, legitimized in having sexual needs. So, th I mean, that's a radical statement. I think people, historians who study sexuality look at that with, with wide eyes and, and raised eyebrows and just think that's a remarkable statement. And I don't think, I think most people don't know that that's in the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, nobody knows that. I mean, again, it's one of those misconceptions, one of those blind spots. Third thing we said is that couples should have it often. Uh, that's another thing that, that the Apostle Paul said that I think most people are surprised. He said, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. So Paul says, you know, for a married couple, you ought to be having sex on a regular basis. And he says, you could make an argument, I suppose, for a two or three day, you know, gap in your, in your sexual life, if you both need some concentrated prayer time. Uh, but then other than that, it ought to be, it ought to be regular. It ought to be consistent. It's part of how you care for one another. And it's part of how you ward off temptation. Another interesting thing that Paul says that, again, this was our fourth thing was, it's not just about the kids. I think there's an idea out there in the culture that Christians believe in sex, like, sure, but only so as to have babies. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible absolutely makes the connection between sex and babies. Uh, but actually, even before it makes that, or, or more primary than that, it, it talks about companionship. It's not good for the man to be alone. And, and so there's this idea that sex in the Bible is first and foremost intimate friendship. Uh, that it's the way that we comfort each other. I do a lot of weddings, and um, one of my favorite quotes, it doesn't go off very well with young people because it's kind of in King James Version language, but I like it so much I throw it in, and then I just explain it. But Matthew Henry has this great line uh, where he, he talks about receiving comfort, and uh, it's from Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 11. He talks about just having a welcoming, he, it's, it's Victorian language, pre-Victorian era, but Victorian language. He talks about receiving comfort, warmth, and a generous welcome in the marital bed as a great guard against sexual immorality. And I just thought that's, that's a great expression, like comfort, warm welcome, generosity. Like it, it, that's a vision of sexuality that, that I think most of us are surprised to to discover in the Bible. And it's interesting just to point in there, what, the way that you explain it there, Matthew Henry, I, I love that because though just the way he described it is there's a purity around that. Um, and something that's, because our, our, our culture will show sex and they'll try to attract us with its, with its lustfulness and it's almost this dirtiness, you know, and that's the way the culture tells us this is why it'll be good. But what Matthew Henry just said, which you just quoted was, it's this cool reversal where it's like, no, no, we're going to enjoy it, but it's in this generous, it's pure, it's lovely, it's beautiful. I think that's important. So I like that. Yeah. And, and I, I like what you said there about the culture always depicting sex in terms of its sort of baser or crasser nature. And I think that's one of the reasons why Christians are sometimes loath to talk about, about sex at all, because 
we're worried that, oh, here, here comes the sex conversation. It's going to get crass. It's going to get, you know, it, it's going to get inappropriate. We have something beautiful to say. The Bible doesn't say that sex is wrong. The Bible just talks about sex so differently, you almost think you're talking about something else. And what we have to do is instead of just not having that conversation, we just have to have the, the conversation on biblical terms. Um, but that, that, you know, that's, that's a challenge in today's culture because all of our, our assumptions about sex come from the culture, not from the text. Yep, that's right. And so even for Christians, even in the church, I mean, the reality is we learn most of what we think about sex comes from movies, uh, not from the Bible. And, and so there is this, you know, kind of crass view of sex that you, you almost have to unteach in order to say what the Bible says about sex. But anyway, just to finish answering your first question there, the fifth thing we said in the article is it's not what makes you truly human. And um, I, I think a lot of people resonated with this uh, because there's an assumption in some parts of the evangelical world that if you're not married, if you don't have three, four, five, six kids, you're not really living the Christian life, right? Which puts a lot of pressure, of course, on single people. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and people wonder, like, am I, am I less than? What's, what's interesting to help people understand is that actually that bias was completely opposite in the early church. The early church bias was towards celibacy. In fact, there were so many celibate characters in the Bible, right? I mean, we think of Elijah, Jeremiah, uh, Jesus, of course, uh, John the Baptist, uh, the Apostle Paul. There were so many celibate characters that actually this idea started going around the early church that if you really wanted to follow Jesus, if you want to be on the inside lane, uh, then you needed to be a lifelong celibate. And Paul actually had to push back against that and re-legitimize marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 and said, no, 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 both are gifts from God. He says, I wish more people were like me, right? Uh, meaning lifelong celibates with the gift of celibacy, able to serve God without any division of interest, without any worry or anxiety. I mean, Paul Paul could have a dream one night and pick up and start a mission to Europe the next morning. Yeah, yeah. I can't do that. I've, no. got, I've got five kids and a mortgage, right? Yeah. If, if I had a dream that, I'm, that God wants me to go to Europe, that'd take me like three years of planning. <laughs> right, right. Um, but, you know, for Paul, that's, you know, he had the dream at 4 a.m. He was on the boat at 6 and, and he says, I, you know, I wish there were more like that. But he says, but each has a gift from God. Marriage is a gift. It's got unique blessings, unique opportunities. But celibacy is a gift too. And I think that that conversation needs to, be, needs to be had in the church. We need to talk about how these are both good, but you can be fully human as a, as a spouse and you can be fully human as, as an unmarried celibate individual. It's not intrinsic. Sex is, is beautiful. It's wonderful but it's not necessary in terms of your humanity or your mission as an image bearer of God. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th- I just, I totally concur. I think that's a great point. And I, I remember on the show uh, about two years ago now, we had Sam Alberry, and uh, he's obviously committed to celibacy. Yeah. And uh, yeah. W- one thing he said that I always remember, he said, you know, my married friends, there is a depth of friendship that they have that I can't experience yeah, because they're married with their spouses. Right. But he said, yeah. but there is a breadth of friendship that my married friends can't experience like I have. And he was just kind of showing that there is a gift here that I, I am able to fly all over the place. Well, this is obviously pre, pre-COVID and, and be with all these sorts of people and have these rich, rich friendships that are not as deep as your, hopefully not as deep as your, you know, friendship with your spouse. Yeah. Um, but there is a breadth and it's a beautiful thing. So I, I just, I think that's a great, that's a great point you make, Paul. So that's good. Yeah. Well, you think of, you think of guys like John Stott, right? And, and there's all the things that he was able to do and the, and the breadth, you know, that's a great word, the breadth of his involvement in the evangelical world before he was passing. 
that's not something a married person can do. No, uh, not it's not something a married person should aspire to do. Yeah, uh, and you know, to be married, you have to take the multi generational look. You have to say, I am going to have a lasting, deep impact in my children. But I am by necessity going to have a, a less deep, less impactful relationship to the wider church, to the body of Christ as a whole. You, you can't be John Stott with five kids and 15 grandkids. It's not a thing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. We won't talk about how Spurgeon seemed to be able to do it all, but we'll just leave that, we'll leave that for yeah. that day. <laughs> God gave him a big yeah. capacity. Unless, I don't get unless it. your Spurgeon is, <laughs> yeah. the, is the last sentence in a whole bunch of arguments. Okay. That's good. I like that. I like that. That's good. Um, all right. So um, we've already touched on this a little bit, but let's let's kind of dig in a little bit more here. So it's true that our unchurched, the unchurched culture that we live in um, has been, I, I believe it's been a lot more open and it's been uh, positive about sex, talking about it in movies, music, all that stuff, but it's always in a more uh, da- damaging degree. So we talked about the sexual revolution. While the church, though, has had this reputation, like you've already suggested and said, of being a little bit more quiet about it, or if it does speak, it's more anti- on issues of, of sex. So how would you, from your studies and from your life, what do you think is the correction to this? What What's the antidote to give to Christians who have, who have heard all about this stuff from the outside and then the inside of the church, they've just sort of experienced this kind of like, oh, I don't know, no sex before marriage. And what's the antidote to that? Well, you know, as is so often the case in, in the church, there's a, a narrow road with a, a huge ditch on either side. And meaning, and I say that to just say, I want to be gracious to everybody. And I hope people are gracious with me because we will find the ditch on both sides of of this narrow way. And partly it's just because this is a conversation that's fraught with cultural tensions, right? We're not having this conversation in a vacuum. We're, We're having it against the pervasive influence of media and culture on this topic of sexuality. So it's very hard to, to maintain a steady course on the, on the narrow road on this one. But I would say in, in general, for most of my childhood, and I would, I would probably argue for most of recent Christian history, we have fallen into the ditch of simply saying nothing and only opening our mouths on the topic of sexuality when we needed to say no. And I, I don't think that's helpful because then the only thing people hear from us is no. And so that again, we're kind of associated with this no, you know, Debbie Downer kind of kind of approach to sexuality, which is not helpful. Then, of course, the ditch on the other side is to become crass and insensitive to the matter of, of sexuality and and to talk in ways that lack decorum and, and dignity. And, and that's that's not helpful either. Um, but I would say somewhere in the middle, there is this place where we simply speak gladly and confidently out of what the scriptures actually say. And I think one of the things that we have to do better is, well, first of all, I think this problem goes away somewhat if you develop a reputation in your church for simply preaching sequentially through the Bible. Meaning, I think topical preachers get in trouble because if you're choosing the topics, you're either going to overchoose topics of sexuality, if that's your inclination, if you're inclined to that ditch, or you're going to under talk about sexuality if you're inclined to the other ditch. But I think if you just, let me ask you a question. Could you preach through 1 Corinthians without having several conversations about sex? No. I mean, of course you couldn't, right? In 1 Corinthians 5, you're going to talk about how to discipline sexual sin in the church. In 1 Corinthians 6, you're going to have to talk about, you know, sleeping with prostitutes, because apparently that was a big issue in the early church, right? You're going to have to talk about, about what the Bible actually says with respect to chastity. 
you're going to have to talk about why sexual sin excludes people from the kingdom of God if we persist in it, if we don't repent of it. So, I mean, and, and then, of course, that's not even, we haven't got to 1 Corinthians 7, where we're going to have to talk about sexuality within marriage. I mean, you're going to have multiple sermons on sexuality just, just by making the decision to preach through the Corinthian correspondence. So I think if we did that, that would be very helpful if more churches just preached through books of the Bible. Uh, but I think also we need to do a better job of, of giving the why. I think a lot of times we just tell people, well, you can't do this or you can't do that. And then they, if they ask why, we just say, well, because the Bible says so. And I think there's a, there's a point in the Christian life where that's a compelling argument. I, I, I think a mature Christian is content with that answer right? Well, because God says so. Okay, sure. God knows things I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm an idiot and I'm subject to all manner of internal deceptions. Uh, I've got warped flesh and twisted desires. So yeah, sure. God says so is fine. But for those either inquiring or for those who are immature and just starting out, that's, that's not an adequate answer. And so I think there needs to be more conversation around the beauty and the wisdom of all of God's commands, but particularly God's commands with respect to sex. And here's where I'm optimistic. I actually think this will be easier to do in the coming generation, because I think, I, I, I think the, dare I say, insanity of the current sexual ethic and culture is going to show itself and make a convincing argument uh, for a return to, to biblical sexual ethics. A reformation of sex, yeah. We're just, yeah, we're headed for a train wreck in culture with respect to the things uh, that we're believing and proclaiming about sex. So I think it's going to be very easy to point to the biblical sexual ethic and, and say, see its beauty, see its stability, see its health. I think instead of just saying, listen, God says you can't have sex until you get married, you know, just use one example. I think there's an opportunity to actually have a conversation about why sex within a covenant relationship is such a kindness that it's, it's kind to children. Numerous studies have been done indicating that if you have your children after you get married, their outcomes, their life outcomes are so far ahead of those children that were born before, out of marriage and before marriage. In fact, it's, it's made its way into something called the success formula, which your listeners should Google, um, that talks about, there's, it's written from a non-Christian perspective. These four things, if you do them, it's almost impossible to be poor in this culture. And one of them is get married before you have babies. It's such a kindness to the children. And it's a kindness to women. I mean, ask, ask your average single mom how much she enjoys working 50 hours a week to earn a living for her family and then going home and also tying hockey skates and cutting grass and putting out garbage. Ask how much fun that is. So the biblical mandate to have sex within a covenant relationship between two people is a kindness to women and children. I think we need to make that argument. It's a beautiful argument, and, and we should make more of an effort to show the why behind the things that God says. Yeah, no, that's good. So, I mean, you're, I, th- I feel like you're setting yourself up for it. Let me just ask then, why? What, 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 it, what is the beauty? What is that kindness? I'm thinking of if people are listening right now, and this is all new to them, and I'm sure there are lots of listeners right now that says, Paul, like this is... This is not the way that I've understood it. Um, I've only known what the culture says about it, and my parents just tell me not to do it before I'm married. So then, why? What? 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 What is this purpose? That's a good question. You know, and, and we've already touched a little bit on you know the the why of sex within a covenant relationship. But just to explore that a little further, I, I one of the things that I would say, it just you know, I've been a pastor now uh, for 26, going on 20, 27 years. It'll be 27 years in September. And in, in my counseling, 
one of the things that, that I have encountered is that not exclusively, but generally couples that were sexually active, um, let's just say in the normal cultural way before coming together in covenant marriage, they have a harder time experiencing the fullness of, of what sex is intended to be. Sex is intended to be an experience of total knowledge and acceptance, right? There's an old saying, uh, what, what we all want is to be fully known and completely accepted. If we're fully known but, but not accepted, I mean, obviously, that's, that's heartbreaking. That's to be rejected, right? If we are not fully known but accepted, then that's very difficult to maintain because we're hiding, right? We're, we're playing a role. Uh, and so we're always worried we're going to be found out. But to be fully known and, and fully accepted and more than accepted, to be completely delighted in is every human's desire. It's, a, it's one of the things we're made for. It's one of the things we want most. And, and basically, that is a harder state to achieve in covenant marriage if you have had a variety of sexual experiences before marriage, because each one of those sexual experiences obviously didn't result in marriage. So there was, there was some rejection there. There was some dissolution. And so that, that makes us wonder whether we are lovable and that makes us more inclined to hide. Uh, if we've been rejected numerous times, we're more inclined to hide. If we're aware that the person we're with has been with many others, then we're constantly worried that we may not measure up. It puts a lot of pressure. And fear, anxiety, all those things don't make for great sex. Uh, vulnerability, trust, and openness make for great sex. And, and so I, you know, I would just say, just on that one plane, and we haven't even got into, you know, why does God say don't commit adultery? Why does God say, you know, for sex to be heterosexual as opposed to homosexual? But just on this one aspect of God's design, I think it's, I think it's relatively easy to understand why not following God's instructions make it more difficult to experience the fullness of what God has in store. Now, to speak a word of grace, I would say that's not to say that we can never achieve or realize what God has in store for us if we've made these past mistakes. Certainly, we can be forgiven. It is important to remind people that to be completely forgiven is not to have all consequences erased. Uh, if I got drunk and ran over a, a mother with her children in my car, I could be forgiven if, if, uh, if those people extended me great grace. I could be forgiven by God as well. I still might go to jail, and rightly so. And so there, there can be consequences in our bodies. I, I have a friend who, let's just say, he indulged in sex in its cultural form and norms prior to becoming a Christian, became a Christian, and uh, unfortunately had picked up you know, a disease that um, made, made having children with his wife extraordinarily difficult. That was, that was a massive issue for them to process in their marriage. And so consequences can follow us. But I would say there's, there's grace, there's forgiveness. And then as God heals us over time, uh, we are able to enter in at the full depth and experience. But it is simply, it is harder. And like a good parent wants to save their children, you know, I always say to my kids, why do you insist on making all the mistakes that I make? Learn from my experience, you know, let me save you a few, a few painful missteps and of course, God, God doesn't make mistakes, but he does know what a painful misstep is, and he's able to guide us in the right way. So trusting God with respect to your sexuality brings blessing and joy and, and saves from a great many hardships and, and heartaches. Yeah, that's good. And I, I appreciate you. And I, I was going to ask you about the whole uh, aspect of how the gospel fits into those that maybe are listening and they've made some mistakes. And I'm just glad that you just mm -hmm. organically went there because it is so important. Um, because I, I'm sure as you know, um, because we all can all have sexual struggles that there's a, there's, a, there is heavy shame 
uh, when it comes when yeah. it comes to this. So the message of grace on that, and I, I really appreciate what you were doing, delineating between uh, forgiveness and consequences. I think that's important. We have to recognize yeah. that and and deal with that. And and God will give us grace through working through the consequence too. Um, absolutely. Yep. Um, but I think no. it's so important to know that that forgiveness is there, and uh, and uh, that that's just a that's just a beautiful thing. And especially when you do you know, get together with a, a, a spouse who is also spirit filled and, um, and they are yeah. able, Christ in them can extend that forgiveness. It's one of the most beautiful, beautiful things ever. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's what you, it comes back to that yeah. fact of, I know everything about you and I accept you. It's freeing. It's beautiful. Um, and it's, it's wonderful. Thanks, Paul. Yeah. Well, unfortunately we're going to have to cut our first conversation short, but we're going to continue it on in a second Part. So let me just say, from what we've already talked about already, from what you have brought to the table, Paul, thank you so much uh, for discussing this important topic with us. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of In Doubt. Thanks for joining us. Even though sex is something that is talked about all the time in our culture, it's often skewed when it comes to talking about it from a biblical point of view. Hopefully you learned some new ways to view, respect, and understand sex during this episode. And thanks so much to Paul for joining us today. If you'd like to hear more from Paul, you can find him on social media at Pastor Paul Carter. It's like pastor without the O. We'll have all his social channels linked on the episode page on our website. And if you're still wanting to hear more from Paul, you're in luck. He'll be back next week with Isaac again to finish up their conversation on sex, why it's so important in the life of a Christian, and how we can better understand it. See you then. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. <laughs>